0: Hello, welcome to the Accessibility and Digital Inclusion podcast. Uh, My name is Tishil Tadija and I'm the Head of Public Sector at BGSS. And I'm joined today with a colleague of mine, uh, Rob Van Tull, uh, who's uh, lead service designer for Spark. Rob, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi there. Yeah, I work for Spark, which is BGSS's strategic design uh, agency. And uh, I have a particular and long lasting interest in accessibility going back
0: (laughs) decades. Excellent. Thanks, Rob. So we do, um, within BGSS and Spark, we do a lot of work within the public sector, delivering digital transformation programs, um, uh, particularly kicking off with discovery pieces of work as well, which are focused quite largely on service design. But accessibility is something that is um, a focal point throughout all of our deliveries. Um, so to kick this discussion off, um, what did Domino Beyonce and Harvard University all have in common? Well, they've all been recently subject to court cases from users who felt discriminated against because accessibility problems on their websites or apps. So accessibility, or rather universality, is important. Get it wrong, and you're looking at financial and reputational impacts. But what do we mean about accessibility and what does the term digital inclusion mean? Rob, you've got lots of experience in this. So yeah. Give us your viewpoint on that.
1: It's, um, it's one of those topics that's always been around and has many words and always sounds a bit hard. I often think it's, it's a bit like filling in your tax return, you know, you have to do it, you're supposed to have to do it, but you get a bit frightened by it. And the multiplicity of terms around it, accessibility, accessible design, inclusive design, universal design, digital exclusion, uh, inclusion, um, they're all uh, a kind of a soup that is about Wouldn't it be great if everybody could just use your website, your app, your piece of software? Um, And they all come from slightly different uh, backgrounds. So accessibility is traditionally web-based and the guidelines that we follow, the Web Content Guidelines 2.1, WCAG, uh, have been maturing for a long, long time. Inclusive design, has come from um, awareness of diversity of people uh, rather than a sort of technical website and universal design has come from uh, an architecture-led thought that we should be removing barriers uh, all over the place and has led to the things like seeing all the curbs dropped uh, on every single little road junction so that people in wheelchairs and prams and with small children can use things easily and they all come together quite nicely because the digital and the non-digital are blending themselves together in quite a complicated uh, way uh, now and it's you know it's up to us to push this forward uh, just as you have to push a tax return forward
0: indeed so it's a very broad area then really isn't it it's It it is.
1: And because of that, it can be a bit daunting. Mm. And in some respects, there's no sort of simple perfect answer. You know, if you were designing a shelf system for people, you can't optimize it for both very tall people, and also for very short people. And likewise, the range of diversity issues motor problems, visual problems, oral problems, cognitive problems that people have to deal with either on a permanent, lifelong, life-limiting basis or or maybe just temporarily because of injury or illness or other things that come into play. They're all really, really, really complicated and can often fight against each other. which kind of induce kind of slopey shouldered, well, why bother kind of thing. Well, mm. you can do a lot to make it as inclusive as possible. It's, it's, you know, we don't live in a perfect world, but we certainly can have a world where we haven't foolishly or neglectfully just put in barriers that don't need to be there. So it's really about removing those barriers. And the law has been pushing this for a long time. I mean, really a really long time that, Disability Discrimination Act was back in 1995, you know, it was 25 years ago. And here we are still chatting about it as if it was a thing. Um, There've been more recent uh, pieces around that, the Equality Act 2010. Um, And finally, uh, there's a slight loss of patience with the fact that this still remains something that we have to be talking about. And certainly for the public sector, a grace period was put in that said by the 23rd of September this year, you must make your sites, your websites, and your apps accessible to people, whether they're internal or external facing. So it's been a long time coming, and there's still so much to do.
0: Absolutely. So it's it's, it's clearly not a trivial issue, really. And it's clearly not just a, well, what was a, Potentially a financial or reputational kind of issue. It's now law, as you say. The 23rd of September is, is, is quickly coming upon us. So when we talk about services, we don't just mean digital services, we don't just mean externally facing services as well as so the citizen facing services. It's also internal aspects, back-end systems as well. So people with working within organisations that need to have services that are accessible. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more
1: about that? So, I mean, the fundamental drive is that it's a bit pointless making public facing things accessible if you then include, uh, exclude people who live with disabilities all their life from being able to work because internal systems are rubbish. Mm -hmm. Now, most of us know that our internal systems are substantially more inferior than any of the uh, public facing ones, you know, I, I rarely hear anybody say, oh, we've got a wonderful internet, it's great. Um, most of these things are a hodgepodge of legacy and, and bits and bobs. That's all right, so long as you've taken some remedial action to make sure that these old fashioned things that have been you know, systemically underinvested in in many years uh, have at least a plan of action to bring them up to date and remove these barriers that
0: can so easily exist Obviously this year um, we've had the impact of Covid Mm -hmm. and it's had an unprecedented increase in remote-based working uh, and a surge of kind of digital usage where before you could interact with people to get jobs and processes done and so forth, a lot of that has changed. Has this made accessibility a more pertinent aspect, would you say? Oh, Absolutely, absolutely. People who live with um,
1: impairments all their lives, they're usually very good at uh, workarounds, Mm -hmm. uh, tools that they can use, people they can ask. And to have that world turned upside down and suddenly you're enclosed in your own house with just the facilities and limitations there, relying completely on the software to get stuff done uh, was a huge jolt. Now, it was also a jolt for the rest of us in terms of it's probably uh, accelerated some of the trends that were already happening. You know, homeworking was already increasing, use of video conferencing was already increasing, and it's just, like, put all of that into a Formula One car and driven it right through our working culture and our corporate IT, who, you know, like a nice steady rate of change. So, yeah, the whole thing was just ballooned uh, and we are more dependent than ever before, that this stuff
0: just works for us. Absolutely. So that's presumably had a, a, a positive impact, actually, on, on 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 services that are being provided by organisations that are publicly based, on, but also increasing the efficiency I- internally. What, what other benefits do you, do you think this will bring? Um, I think, well, first and foremost, it's just
1: changed our minds about what has to be, what's mandatory about work. And it's made remote working uh, a new normal. This is going to uh, benefit people uh, who have mobility problems Mm. hugely. Um, It's also going to concentrate our minds um, because we're wholly dependent on this stuff uh, all the time we can't exclude it, we can't ignore it, we can't fall back on our own uh, little dodges and workarounds. Uh, I'm, I don't regard myself as disabled, but I'm dyslexic. Uh, I've you know, had a lifetime of working right, uh, around that. Indeed, I, I got into this subject because computers were marvellous because they come with spelling checkers. Ah, oh, mm. what a joy. Um, I think we all find that a joy, by the way, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that will only be more so Now, for some organizations, it's shone a really bright light at their practices, and they've realized that they cannot currently actually really activate uh, good digital solutions, and it's forced them to go slightly backwards. Um, My GP, as a minor example, has turned off the ability to make appointments through the NHS app because its own back-end systems weren't just good enough to cope with the NHS app. Uh, And so you have to, you know, kind of go back to an old fashioned ring up uh, and, you know, press one to be slightly annoyed and press two to be frustrated and all of that kind of stuff uh, that we've had to put up with. So some people have been caught out flat footed from all of this and the rest of us have been stretched.
0: Well, I think that's a good point you've got there really as to um, it's, it's, you know, it's taken something like this to really, to really highlight some of those gaps Um, in services that are being provided. If if we cast our mind back to what the Government Digital Service has been doing for a little while now, so since it formed in in 2012 and its standard has been um, altered and adjusted um, in in a good way since it it came about from from that report that Martha Lane Fox did, um, it's now got a 14-point service standard throughout the different phases. And accessibility is an integral part of that um, so how do we as service delivery partners to the public sector how do we embed that into our delivery practice from the outset as clearly it, it needs to be there at the forefront it needs to be throughout um, and it needs to be there when we walk away as well for from an enduring perspective GDS has been um,
1: a godsend I think <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because you can't get stuff passed uh, without uh, going through a very formal assessment, it's really kept us uh, honest. And even ourselves as user-focused people, we traditionally, I think, you know, we're nice people and we like to get on, and if a project needed to cut a corner, then, you know, we'd go, well, you know, it's suboptimal, but we'll cut the corner, whereas now you can't. No. You have to go and get step-by-step step inside the minds of your users. And that's not just your able-bodied, fully functional, digitally skilled users. Mm. It's with users who have modest or no digital skills. It's with users who have cognitive or motor or other impairments that make using digital devices use. Um,
0: problematic for them uh, so on, on that point then Rob so we, you know we tend to just like other organizations perform uh, a great amount of user research um at the at the start of the project and then as we progress as well it's, it's an iterative process where we get continual feedback I would imagine and we've also faced before in the past that the the user community that we have access to um don't have those broad kind of accessibility needs so it's quite often the case whereby we can't assess all uh, and we don't have that broad spectrum so how do do you how do we go about that whereby we don't have access to all of those users what are the different types of approach how do we mitigate that okay so
1: the ideal is you go to a professional marketing recruitment agency and you ask them to find that narrow slice of people that you want to investigate uh, and speak to. And they're really, really good at working to a brief and finding those kinds of people. If you, for whatever reason, can't uh, manage that, then the next is to go and find people within your own organization who are living with various impairments and ask them to kind of contribute as test subjects um, to, uh, help you out, and you know, usually they'll be delighted to try and help you out and make their own lives uh, easier. Um, if there are gaps in them, um, you can role play yourself. There's a, a technique called body storming, which is uh, walking through physically the exercise that you want to do uh, and go through. Whether that's just clicking through on the software screen or if you develop an app, taking that app and putting it into a real world situation where you might want to use it. Um, and if necessary, s- simulating some of the problems that might come up if you have a, a specific set of impairments. It, it's not a perfect exercise, but it is a sensitivity raising exercise. And actually, raising your consciousness about the whole thing. Uh, is a huge uh, plus point when it comes to accessibility because so many accessibility problems are created just through not thinking about it. And if you hold accessibility in your mind as you are designing things, then it just removes so many barriers. Um, there's a whole raft of online tools that you can use to test some of the discrete little elements, particularly the visual elements or the uh, textual elements uh, of your content. And then finally, there are some really, really good specialist agencies who employ uh, disabled people or people living with impairments across a whole range and who will subject your software to a whole battery of tests uh, and and produce really detailed responses that your devs can really get hold of and go and fix things. So there's a big range of choices, obviously, actually meeting real people in the context where they're going to use it. So going to a doctor's surgery, as we did, or many doctor's surgeries, as we did for the NHS app, for example, uh, is the best. But that doesn't mean it's an all or nothing just because you can't reach those kinds of people easily.
0: Wow, so there's there's lots of things that we can do to mitigate that effectively, um, which is which is really really interesting, uh, and and good to hear as well because as 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 we do really really like working within GDS, and as you say, it's, it's been an absolute godsend. It is a time it is a time bound activity, uh, and and therefore you have a restricted period to undertake particular tasks, and and evidence that back as well to the assessors so that they've got. Um, they've got evidence to suggest that you've actually undertaken the correct level of research and you have fed that into your delivery. Could you, you know, we've we've worked on a number of projects now within the government sector. Would you be able to share some examples of where we've done this? I think one that jumps to my mind is around what we did for the DVSA um, around the drive and examiner services. Would you be able to share that example, Rob? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a great example. And... Just before I get into that, I suppose it's worth mentioning, this isn't a perfect standard. Mm -hmm. Um, Often people talk about compliance. You have to comply to WCAG 2.1. WCAG is is not a standard. The G stands for guidelines and they stand for guidelines because there isn't a perfect solution. What GDS is looking for is that you've done enough research and that you've learned from that research and you've incorporated your learnings back into your software and made it better. So for DVSA, uh, we were creating an app to be used on a tablet for driving examiners to do the driving test on and replace their um, 50-year-old paper form.
0: 80-year-old, actually, Robert.
1: 80-year-old, (laughs) good grief. Um, And, you know, so that involved not only just going out to driving test centres, and talking to the whole range of uh, driving examiners, but sitting in the back, I got myself personally folded into the back of a Fiat 500, I'm six foot two, I didn't even know a Fiat 500 had a back seat, and did a driving test, a real driving test, with the person in front of me watching what the examiner did physically with their clipboard, and with their hands uh, and with their eyes, and understanding the priorities so that we could adapt the app. So it became obvious, for example, that they would put their hands uh, on the tablet whilst they were doing the driving test. It was obvious that they wouldn't be looking at it very often because they were concerned for road safety for the great majority of their time. And obviously, driving examiners are just normal people, so they come in a huge range of sizes and widths and heights and all the rest of it. And some of them get pregnant. And uh, I saw one who would um, taken a tumble and injured their hand and broken their thumb and how they were having to cope with all of that. Uh, some are colorblind, uh, some are you know, dyslexic and they do driving examiners because they don't have to write too much. So speaking to all their concerns and listening to how they in the real world got round and supported themselves through whatever difficulty major or minor life limiting or life annoying just for a temporary time uh, was uh, really eye-opening because we were changing a fundamental aspect of their whole working life you know it's not just here's a website this was the central tool of how they did their job so we spent a long time with them
0: yeah so when you talk about their job um my i, so I have a seventeen year old son and he he recently took his driving test and I was with him at the at the the examination center and I saw the lady who was the examiner take him into the car uh, and I saw she had the device in her hand and so forth so I got a little bit excited um because obviously we've been involved in that and um I did wait to talk to her about it until after the exam didn't want to interfere and uh, so I got a little bit of feedback from her um and she said that actually it's it's so much better now using using a device because it guides you through, it supports the test. It means that you're not taking your eyes off the road um, in, in the majority of cases and, and, and ticking boxes and so forth and looking for those particular areas on the form as well to fill in, because it guides you throughout that. Uh, and it's also the the benefit the other benefit that she mentioned as well that it's it's hugely efficient because As soon as the results uh, identified, it then, well, if it's passed, it it, it notifies the DVLA straight away and the license can be generated. Therefore, you know, removing a big manual step and potentially a a fraudulent aspect in the process as well, Um, and clearly cut down a lot of uh, paperwork too. So I guess going back to the September deadline, um, there are a lot of public sector organizations out there that won't be ready for it. Um, what would you say the best advice you could give them right now on, on what they can do? So the number one
1: thing, you know, this is government, government is bureaucratic. So what the government wants to see first and foremost is a compliance statement and a plan. Absolutely to show that you've done some thinking, to show that you've recognised that you've got issues and that you're going to move forward on these issues. Um, They may be underwhelmed by the fact that you're doing this now because you've had a three-year grace period in which to get yourself organised, but if you don't have that, then they will take a very deep view. Um, And then to prioritise the worst areas. kind of in a utilitarian the greatest good for the greatest number, what is your priority hit list for what has the greatest impact on people's lives? Both in terms of uh, systems that are like really high volumes that everybody must be able to use, such as the NHS app, or expert systems like the driving examiners that affect a relatively small Number of people, still thousands, um, and and involves them intimately throughout their daily working lives. So there's that mix between a large number of people doing one or two things and a small number of people doing a whole load of things that is core to their to their working life. And it's a difficult balance to um, to decide which is more important than the other. But at least if you've you know drawn up a risk matrix around the whole thing and developed a plan. You can start to, to tick off them one by one or ask us to come and have a look at that um, because part of it is, is we all get used to our own limitations and stuff we you know we don't like to grumble so we just put up with it so it can often be a fresh pair of eyes to come in and go no actually you know these, this is where the buried uh, bodies are buried
0: well, absolutely. Um, I think us as an organisation, in particular Spark, would be very interested to hear from, from organisations that would like to structure their plan and their strategy going forward, or, or as you say, get a second set of eyes um, to provide um, an opinion and a view as to where they're at in that journey and what they can do going forward. Yeah. I is think... It, can... Sorry.
1: Is it, you know, that they're, they're wanting to open up a thing anyhow and they need to address accessibility as part of that? Or are they largely happy with the service they currently offer, but need to triage uh, and deal with the specific accessibility issues that might lie, with, lie within it? Uh, do they need to go, well, actually, accessibility is going to be a problem and it's too hard to fix temporarily. So we need to offer um, a digitally assisted service instead to parallel that to support people with accessibility issues or digital exclusion issues
0: all of those three strategies uh, are available as choices. Indeed. Well, I think, you know, to put it into context as well, I think statistically one in five people in the UK have a disability. And, we, and remember, we're not talking just about disability. We're talking about accessibility, universality, and so forth. But to put that into context, that's about the same number of people who have brown eyes. Um, yeah. So there is a large amount of the population um, it's a majority of the population, effectively. That if you do not address your services in a correct way, and you do not have the ability for them to be accessible to the population, then clearly heh, your business model is well, somewhat slightly failing in areas where it could be succeeding.
1: Yeah, and and, and it, you know, if you want to be um, hard-hearted about it, it's not just them; it, it's usually all of us. Exactly. If you have a, you know, a public site that you know, doesn't represent well uh, on your mobile device, then we go, oh, well, I'd certainly roll my eyes and think yeah. how all yeah. yeah. they are. If you have an app or a site that doesn't work well with people uh, with you know, restricted abilities, then it's probably not going to work well with bots. Absolutely, they have restricted abilities and so or, or internet of things um, in the future you know these these are relatively simple devices with simple needs and they can easily uh, be blocked by barriers so it, it's not just a strata of society you're affecting you're making yourself a bit rubbish to everybody
0: well, oh you're, you're impacting from a future proofing perspective aren't you
1: yeah
0: absolutely rob i've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about this topic today. Um, any final last thoughts?
1: I go back to the tax return. <laughs> you know, I do it every year. I leave it to the last possible moment. We are at the last possible moment for uh, public sector accessibility. And then when you're actually going to do it, when I fill out my form, I always go, it wasn't that hard as I thought it was going to be. And, and it needn't be. Uh, and you don't have to you know, boil the entire ocean and fix absolutely everything all at once. You can fix the most important things and then put things onto a backlog and address them as you go through upgrading any service. So you know, don't, don't become frozen with fear with the whole, you know, it's such a big deal.
0: It needn't be. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Rob. And I look forward to talking to you about another topic soon. Cheers, Josiah. Thank you.